the day. I can feel it. A kite today? In the middle of winter? Come on, guys. Only Charlie Brown. A new kite, a perfect breeze. It all feels just right. Lift off! <laughs> Wait a minute. It's in the air. It's flying. Hey, guys, look. Look, I did it. Hey, Charlie Brown. Still no luck, huh? Oh, remember, it's the courage to continue oh. that count. Hey. Runaway kite. My famous triple axle prepares to be a man. A quadruple. Bravo. Oh, stupid kite-eating tree. Good grief. Charlie Brown made that phrase famous. Good grief. He says over and over and over and over again, and. He actually made it famous. I Googled this. He's the one who made it. Good Grief was a phrase that was around a little bit before Charles Schultz created the Peanuts comic strip in 1950 up in Minneapolis. And at the height of its popularity, it was being sent all over the world, daily readers in the hundreds of millions who were fans of Charlie Brown. And Charles Schultz was a deeply spiritual dude, the guy who created Peanuts. And so I don't think it's any accident that he chose the phrase Good Grief. You might think that's over-spiritualizing it, it might be, but I still think there was something underneath that. Charles Schultz actually knew the Old Testament so well, he became an adult Sunday school teacher at his church where he would lead his class through the Old Testament round and round and round again. He grew up Lutheran, and then he got saved, but he grew up Lutheran, and, and he had this kind of journey with God throughout, and he regularly would intersperse uh, Bible verses and Bible themes in his daily comic strips. I mean, famously in the Christmas special, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, he puts a spotlight on Linus when Charlie Brown is lamenting. Good grief, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? And Linus says, sure, I do. And he comes out and he reads the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, word for word, right out of the Bible. And then he goes back to Charlie Brown and says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's this mic drop moment. Charles Schultz was stealthy, in, in kind of a stealthy way, putting biblical themes out into the world through the Peanuts characters. Good grief, Charlie Brown says, because Charlie Brown's this lovable loser who just ends up in all these horrible situations and our hearts break for him and, and we relate to him because we know how that feels. We know how it feels individually when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances and our stresses. And lately and right now, collectively, we know how it feels to feel like Charlie Brown upside down being hung by his toes from a kite-eating tree where the snow drops on top of him and we lament. Good grief. So I have a spiritual question out of that phrase that Charlie Brown made famous. Can grief ever really be good? I know, it's just a phrase. I, I, I get it. It's an expression of futility and frustration and, and disappointment in the face of difficulty. Good, good grief. But take it literally. Can grief be good? We know it can be bad. We know it can be overwhelming. We, we know it can be devastating. We, we know it can knock us down. We know how it feels to feel like we feel. 
Unless we're just in deep denial and sweep all the news of the day under the rug and pretend that there wasn't a shooting a couple of nights ago at Cornerstone Church up in Ames where police officers from our church family, see now it's getting close to home, or police officers from our church family were there on the scene who are a part of our Hope Ames community up there and where Michael, who's a student leader in our college ministry up there, Kairos, is an EMT and he was there and was called to, um, to administer CPR on one of the young women who was one of the victims. Praise God for you, Michael. I don't want to embarrass you, but praise God for you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being the church. Good grief. Some of the goodness in our grief is the heroes are called, and the heroes rise up, and they step up. But it's even beyond that. We're starting a sermon series for this month of June called When Life Gets Tough, and we want to take a closer look at what, what we can do, about how we can navigate through our grief, through the suffering, through, through the sense of this world's completely turned upside down, and it's, and it's getting way too close to home. So we turn to God's word because nothing less will do. Does it mean, the Bible says, it asks this question. It's a question, the great thing about scripture is if you haven't read it, this will surprise you. When you do read it, it reminds you just how honest it is. Christianity isn't the kind of faith where we have to suspend reality and pretend there is no suffering or deny it. Christianity can look square in the face of suffering and say, this is real, and it really hurts, and it doesn't mean we don't have a God and that this God doesn't love us or this God doesn't have power if we have suffering in this world. Jesus himself said to his followers, look, if you follow me, you're going to have trouble in this world. Everybody is, but even my followers will have trouble in this world. But take heart, he says, John 16, 33. I've overcome the world. So the Bible asks some really honest questions. Maybe it's the question that's burdening your heart in your sorrow, in your grief. Does it mean God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or we're persecuted or we're in danger or we're threatened with death like we are? Does it mean that God has abandoned us, that he's removed his hand of blessing from us? A few verses later, scripture answers its own question. No, by no means. For I am convinced, the Holy Spirit writes through the pen of the Apostle Paul, I am convinced that there is nothing in this universe, not life or death, Paul specifically notes. Not angels above or demons below, spiritual forces beyond the the, the realms of what we can physically see. There isn't anything in the present. There isn't any burden that's around us right now. There isn't any future worry or concern that could come our way. There is nothing. There's no force, Paul says. Through the living, written, trusted word of God, the timeless truth of God's word. There's nothing in this universe that can separate us from God's love. Not one thing. So I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else I say in this sermon, I want you to hear this. Listen to me, Christian. I know you're feeling weary, but what does Jesus say? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened and carrying the weight of the world, and I will give you a rest and a peace like nobody else can. I will lighten your burden. I will release you of the suffering that you're feeling. I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, the first words out of his mouth to his closest friends, his disciples, was, peace be with you. And so the goodness in our grief starts to come when we recognize God is present with us, not just waiting to meet us on mountaintops, but he finds us in the deepest, darkest valleys of the shadows of death, in the ditches too. Here's a statue of a depiction of Jesus that's placed prominently right outside of the building where a domestic terrorist came and tried to blow up the Oklahoma City building decades ago. And so this statue was erected, and and at the bottom, it quotes this verse from John chapter 11, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, but oh, does it pack power. Jesus wept. Where are you, God, the psalmist declares, the Bible declares, not atheists, not agnostics, believers. Where are you, God, if we're going to be honest to God? Where are you? How come you weren't there to intervene? How come you didn't stop the shooting at Cornerstone Church? How come you didn't do the same in Buffalo or in Texas or in Oklahoma or in all the other places? And the list just keeps growing and we become numb to it, but it isn't the way. We get to tell the truth about how lost we are, about how broken we are, about how brokenhearted we are. And we don't have to get our stuff together. We don't have to spiritually arrive at a mountaintop. Oh my goodness, if you've heard that kind of teaching before from hopefully well-meaning preachers and teachers, just shut it down, because it isn't biblical. God is not waiting for you to perfect your life, to put immorality behind you, to get over your addictions, to get over your bad habits. God is not waiting for you, for our world, to, to get all of these problems settled and sorted out before he can bless us. He meets us in the valleys of the shadow of death. He meets us right where we are today. So listen to me. God has not given up on you. Don't you give up on God. Don't you dare give up on God. You keep the faith. You hold on to hope because nothing less will do. I believe that in our world we could use a much stronger measure of faith in God and maybe just maybe a little bit of less a little bit less faith in ourselves because we get it skewed we turn to powers and forces in this universe to try to fix that which is broken we turn to bigger than this world problems and we turn to worldly solutions to try to solve them and it isn't the world's fault it's just not capable we just don't have the ability to do it If this kind of stuff doesn't humble us, I wonder what possibly will in the history of America, you look back over the big tragedies, the world wars, civil war, uh, uh, the pandemic of just over 100 years ago, and every single time in the history of America coming out of those collective miserable situations, those grieving situations where we're Charlie Brown hanging by our toes upside down from a tree. And every single time there was revival, But there wasn't this time. We didn't experience the revival as a nation coming out of this pandemic. Why? What's different? What's missing this time? Could it possibly be it's because we're so distracted, trying to elevate worldly solutions, thinking, well, if everybody would just see it this way, or or we condemn people who don't see it our way, and and we get lost instead instead of having Christian compassion and love for the million Americans who died of COVID, we turn it into a fight over whether you should wear masks or not, 
over whether you should social distance or not, over whether you should get the vaccine or not. And we miss the revival. We miss the blessing of God because we're so arrogant, because we're so filled with our own worldly solutions about how we can fix everything all by ourselves. And we don't humble ourselves and get down on our knees before a holy God and say, only you, God, only you, God, can make right which has gone wrong. Only you can heal this nation. But we're too arrogant to say it. And we're lost. We miss the blessing. And Jesus weeps for us. Jesus wept at this funeral of his friend Lazarus because he was brokenhearted. He wept at this funeral because he knew this man. He loved this man. And his sisters were there and they were grieving and crying. In the Bible, this happens a lot. The Bible talks about this story where all the mothers are crying over the, uh, over the devastation of the death of their babies, the infants who were slaughtered by, by an evil force, a government, a nation. And you could hear their cries lifting up. It was the same setting at Cornerstone Church this past week, the day after the shootings, where several of us went up for that prayer service to, to lift up that church in prayer. Because we're on the same team I mean, we don't have the same theology, we don't have the same details, but we're splitting hairs now. We're one in Jesus Christ. So we pray for Cornerstone Church, and we pray for, for all those who are grieving, and for all those who are mourning, for all those who are broken. And we turn to God because nothing less will do. We turn to God because he has a word for us to help us find the good in our grief, to help us find our way to our knees where we humble ourselves before a holy God, you know, like this nation did about four or five times in our history. And every time we did, there was a revival. And when we don't, we miss it. The goodness in our grief is that God shows up for us. He comes alongside of Mary and Martha and he sees them weeping. Like I heard the weeping of all the people who were gathered for this prayer service at Cornerstone Church. There's just wailing. There's this sadness. There's this burden. There's this grief. And it's so heavy. And God says, look higher. <laughs> lift up your eyes. The psalmist declares, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? Oh, my help comes from the Lord. Not a human solution. Bless their hearts. Yes, there are human things we need to do. There are, there are difficult and honest conversations we need to have. That's part of God's healing and solution. Yes, 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 yes. But for the life of me, I don't understand this debate between thoughts and prayers and action. I don't get it. Oh, I understand that people are frustrated with those who have been put in a position where they can take some action, where, where they can do some things. I get the frustration there. But why do we have to dismiss the power of prayer in order to take action? You say, oh, I, I know this is because some of those people hide behind the veil of saying, well, thoughts and prayers, and they really probably, some of them at least, have no intention of praying. They just want to look like they're praying. So there's some sort of worldly gain for themselves, to posture themselves. I hope you're not one of those Christians who tells people you'll pray for them, but then you never do. When you say you're going to pray for somebody, make a point of doing it. Take a knee 
or pray for the person right then and there. Short little prayer. Gracious Lord God, bless this person. I pray for this person right here and right now in Jesus' name, amen. Easy, done. Tap into the power of prayer. But in order for us to take action, does it mean we have to dismiss prayer? Do we have to sound like secular modernists and minimize it and pretend like there's no power with this gift? One of the blessings, one of the, one of the places where we find goodness and grief is God makes his presence known to us. He shows up to us in the deepest, darkest valleys of the shadow of death. But another one is he leads us to pray. He leads us to connect to the one who is, was, and always will be. And so the words of God remind us of the power of God that we can connect to through prayer. Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to soak in this passage from Scripture. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a world like ours that's suffering. They're in exile. They're broken. They're crushed. They're living away from where they want to live. They're being oppressed by a government. And God reminds them through his prophet, Isaiah, of who he is and where we need to turn our primary focus because our actions are important, but our actions are going to need something more. We're going to need more than than just trying to figure this out in in a worldly way. We're going to need a bigger than this world God to heal us from bigger than this world problems. Let's read this together. It's in King James because that's the English God speaks. (laughs) Just kidding. Some of you aren't laughing, you're like, that's true. (laughs) It's about time we slap some King James up on that screen. That's the original language of the Bible. Actually, it's Hebrew in this case, in Isaiah 40, and Greek in the New Testament. And King James is a Slightly above average translation of that original text, but here it's right on. But there's another reason I'm inviting you to read this in King James, two other ones. One is it's a little more poetic that way, and I think that grabs the the mood of this text in the original Hebrew. And so you're going to be reading some thuseth, saith, lordeth kind of thing. But you're smart people. I think you know what you're reading. And the second thing is, is by the end of the sermon, you'll see why we're using King James just for this particular version. Let's read it together because it points us to the power of God and it's humbling at the same time. We need, I believe, a whole lot more faith in God and maybe just a little less faith in ourselves, in the world. Let's read together. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust in the balance. Just stop right there, everybody okay? Like, well, I live first and foremost for governments or politicians or a worldview. God says, not your preacher. God says, that thing you're living for is a drop in the bucket. It isn't going to last as long as an eternal God. I'm saying that as a proud American who waves the flag several holidays every year, puts it out in front of my front yard, considers myself patriotic, praises God for the freedom I have as an American to live in this country. I love this country. I love being an American. I love everything about it. But I do not worship this country or this nation above my God. It is not country first, God second. It is God first and everything else after that. So saith the Lord. 
Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as a small dust in the balance. Let's keep reading together. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. And vanity, he bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as a vanity. Continuing on, next verse, same chapter. Here's where we get a little King Jamesy. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. Next verse, same chapter. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's our hope. Man, doesn't God's word just, it is our hope. It is our only hope. It is the power to make right that which has gone wrong. And it starts with humility. It doesn't start with more fights. It doesn't start with more anger. It doesn't start with false dichotomies. Well, you have to either choose prayer or action. Choose both. Come on, Christian. You've been called to choose both. To let God's light shine for you and through you. And to connect to the one who is, was, and always will be. Because we got problems. And they're on the rise. And denial ain't just a river in Egypt. There's mass shootings and gun and domestic violence and mental illness and lost men, especially young men, and suicide rates that are escalating and spiritual apathy. And I think spiritual apathy is at least woven into a lot of those issues. And there are, there's data. And this isn't data that leads to any sort of conclusion. It's just data that I found scientific research over the last generation of mass shootings in this country. Did you know that 98% of mass shooters are men? We have a problem with what we're teaching men in this culture. We have to take an honest, humble look at that. And I'm not talking about you. This is not every man is 98% likely to do this. It's just that of those who do, 98% are male. That's worth noting, I think, and paying some attention to and asking, why? What are we doing wrong? What, what, would, be, what, what, what would God have us do here? 67% of a criminal record, 65% are mentally ill, which also, on the flip side of that, means a third are not perfectly sane doing what they're doing. 50% acquired their guns legally, 50% acquired them illegally. You're smart people. I don't need to spell all this out for you. I'm just telling you the facts. I'm just telling you what is. The role of the prophet, the role of the preacher, is to preach and to prophesy, not to legislate. And when churches get that wrong, they trip up a lot of things, and they mess up a lot of things. We will continue to proclaim God's word, and we will speak God's word into the issues of our day, because that word needs to go out. But we will not fall into the trap of thinking that we can do this without God. We need more God, not less. I presided at a funeral this last week, speaking of grief and finding goodness in the grief. This is Larry Spencer. Larry Spencer was a POW, a prisoner of war in North Vietnam at what was affectionately or not very affectionately, infamously called the Hanoi Hilton, basically a torture chamber of a residence hall, where every day of his life Larry was tortured, physically, mentally, emotionally, tortured, along with other fellow prisoners, 
Sometimes he could hang out with them, sometimes he couldn't. Larry was a hero, and he was a churchman, and he was a fully devoted follower of Jesus. He and his wife, Anne, would go to the chapel traditional service every Sunday at 8. He um, is a man who is uh, strong and steady and stoic and heroic. And here's the one that'll just blow you away, humble. He would never lead with, I'm Larry Spencer, American hero. Did you hear the F-16 fighter jets in the sky last week over Iowa? Do you know why they were here from California? For Larry. They came for his funeral to do a flyover at the cemetery after I said the, the final words, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, within a minute, right on time, here come these F-16s, just couldn't have been more than 500 feet above the guy. I don't know if that's legal, but they were. I mean, they were flying right over the top, and, and one of them shoots up in, in, into missing man formation, and, and it was this powerful thing. But I said at the funeral, and I'll say it to you, the power of that moment Listen to me, pales in comparison to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Those F-16 bombers cannot raise the dead. They cannot resurrect us from death to new and everlasting life. Where do you put your faith? Where do you put your highest trust? In the F-16 bombers, which I will fully acknowledge, rocked the building behind me as I was leading this funeral shook us like from the inside out to the core of our bones. And, just, and then it was like, whoa! Well, at least that's what I said. That's power. But do you know that God just gives you the resurrection power that he showed up at this funeral of his friend Lazarus with? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. For those who are who belong to me, who were shot in a mass shooting. I'm resurrection for them. Life is not done for them. For Larry Spencer, life is not done for him. Every morning, Larry Spencer, when he was a prisoner of war, would wake up, and if his fellow prisoners were around, they would recite together the 23rd Psalm. I know you've heard it, even if you're not a church person, and this is your first time to church in decades, you've heard the 23rd Psalm before. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How do you think that rang for them as prisoners of war getting tortured every day for seven years? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because there's worldly solutions coming to my rescue. You know, hopefully, yes. I know they hope for that. But their deepest hope was better placed. Because you, God, are with me. Because you, God, are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies who torture me every day. Talk about words coming to life. You're with me. Larry would say, and at first I didn't get this. The more I got to know him, the more I did. He says, I'm really glad that happened to me. I'm really glad I suffered for seven years. There's a goodness to that grief because he taught me what's important in life and it taught me what isn't important in life. You know, sometimes I would be, I'd come into the church on a Sunday morning, I'm all stressed out, oh, I've got so many things to do and there's so many moving, oh, oh what about, we've got to hurry, we've got to run and then I'd see Larry and I'd be like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> this man endured torture for seven years every day and I'm worried about, you know, 
finding the right piece of paper in my note for the Bible so that I don't lose it when I'm preaching my sermon. I'm good. You're good. Because the same God who had Larry every day for seven years in Vietnam has you in the midst of everything you and I and us collectively are up against. Now we're tapping into power. The goodness of grief is that we experience the fullness of God's presence, which leads to a full experience of his peace that passes all human understanding, but it also leads to this power that comes to us through the living word of God, but also through you, the body of Christ. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When's the last time you realized a big part of the purpose of your life is to do just that, to live it out? I was so impressed with this church. Hundreds of you showed up for Larry Spencer's funeral. You packed the chapel where he worships. It was overflow out to the hallway. And most of the people there, because they don't have family, Larry and Ann. Your family for them. Their family for you. Sisters and brothers in Christ. And you showed up for them. You brought the presence of God to them through the presence of you, the body of Christ. The Bible says that's who you are. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And I haven't been more impressed with you as a church for a long time before that. That was really impressive. And then let me just lift up some other unsung heroes in our church. The funeral food people. We give out free meals to anybody who has a funeral. We don't care if they're a member or not. We have volunteers, and I'm preaching to some of you. It's the easiest volunteer gig we have here as far as getting people to show up. We don't have to beg. We don't have to ask. People line up. They say, that'll be me. I'll show up for funerals for people I don't even know in my church family so that I can prepare food and, 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 and brew some coffee and, and get things ready for them so that we can be church for them, so that we can do what the Bible says we were created to do. God comforts us in all our troubles, not just so I can get through my day, but so that that compassion can spill out of me and I can be the church for other people. Sometimes even people who I don't know, because it's kind of a big church. But this is the beauty and the power of the presence of God that, that creates this peace in our hearts, that fills us up with this power. You say, yeah, but I, I, don't, even, I don't even know how to comfort people. I don't know how to pray for people. Here's what Romans 8 says in the message translation. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. Psalm 13 says, God, how long? How long do we have to wait for you to fix things? But if we don't know how or what to pray for people, you say, I'd do it. I'd pray for people, but I, I'm afraid I'll get it wrong. I'm afraid I won't quote the right verses, or I don't know enough verses from Scripture. Or I, I don't know the kind of phrasing, and how am I supposed to address God? And how am I supposed to do all these things? We have prayer classes. We can teach you all that. But look. If we don't know how or what to pray, don't you love the honesty of the Bible? It's almost like God's like, there'll be people who say, well, I'm not going to pray because I don't know how. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. Everybody say, it doesn't matter. Whatever campus you're at, local site, watching online, you're at a hockey, youth hockey tournament, shout it out in the rink on the count of three. Turn to the person next to you and just shout it in their face. Say, it doesn't matter. One, two, three. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to pray. Pray anyway, because you're talking to your best friend. You're talking to the God who made you. 
You're talking to the God who knows how many hairs are on your head. Do you? Some of you are like, it's zero. It's an easy count. <laughs> okay, there's something else about you that God knows that you don't know. God knows the details of your life better than you. Connect with him. Talk to him. And he loves you so much he gave his son to die for you. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I know you all woke up today. It's like, Pentecost Sunday, we're all wearing red. Okay, next week we'll remember to wear red. Because the Pentecost season continues. Pentecost Sunday is the day we remember that God gave birth to his church. He showed up with fire. Jesus says, I'm going to ascend to heaven after he rose from the dead. And it's to your advantage because my spirit, the spirit of God, is going to descend upon you and fill you up. Back to that prayer verse from Romans chapter 8. It doesn't matter if you don't know what to pray for. Because the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit who descends on Pentecost Sunday, does our praying in and for us. Did you know that? Making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. Do you know that a breath can be a prayer? Like, well, I got to find some words. No, you don't. Not according to the Bible. Your sigh, your groan can be a prayer. So, so, well, how's God going to know what I'm praying? Seriously? God is God. God knows what you're praying. God knows the details. It's not like guys would be like, this is a mystery to me. I wonder what is on that person's heart. I wonder what they're sighing about, about what they're groaning about. I have no idea. I'm baffled. God knows. So pray your breath. Breathe in. Let's do this. On the count of three, everybody breathe in. Breathe in the Holy Spirit. Breathe in the presence of God. Breathe in the peace that passes all human understanding. <laughs> I don't want you to pass out, so breathe out. <laughs> breathe out a sigh. All right, now think about our collective grief, our mourning, our challenges, our divisions, our sorrow, our brokenness, our worries about the future, all the stuff that's around us. Then add on top of that the individual stuff you're going up with, you're, you're, you're up against. Now breathe one more time this prayer. Breathe in on this Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit who fills us up. One, two, three. And breathe out your grief. A sigh too deep for words. Do we really want to dismiss the power of prayer? Prayer does nothing. We need a worldly solution. How do you feel right now compared to how you felt just a minute or two ago? Because you breathe in God's presence, which leads to a peace that passes all human understanding, which empowers us. On that day of Pentecost, the promise comes from God. This gift is to you, it's to your children, and it's to even those who are far away from God. I want to fill everybody up with my healing power. So when the power comes over us, we remember that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we humbly and purposefully fall to our knees right where we need to be. And we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, which the world says, well, what's that going to do? That looks like a defeat to me. It looks like your leader died. It looks like a, a, a horrendous loss. Look closer. Because the Jesus who died on the cross said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and then he did it. 
And if you have faith, you belong to him, so he'll do it for you. And he'll do it for Larry Spencer. And he'll do it for all who belong to him, the victims of these shootings even. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved, notice the very power. Everyone say power. power. The power of God. So power doesn't have to be loud. Power doesn't have to be angry. Power doesn't have to look like worldly force. That's an imitation of power. Power is this peace that we know that there's a God and this God loves us. That's power. And that power is here for you today. My favorite movie of all time is called Chariots of Fire. I have a lot of favorite movies, but this is my top. It tells the true story. I love movies that tell true stories about this guy. Well, the guy this actor is portraying, Eric Little, who won a gold medal in the 400 meters in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. I think it was 1924. And this movie tells his story and some other stories and weaves it together beautifully. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. Eric Little wasn't just a gold medal winning 400 meter runner, the best in the world. He was a missionary before that and after that. A Christian missionary to China. And so when he came to Paris for his run, the day before his run on Sunday, he was invited to preach as a missionary at a Christian church in Paris. And winning the gold medal the next day was a great victory for Eric Little and for his country the United Kingdom, but the day before, I'm sure from his perspective, was more powerful. He did what we're doing right now, is one church in thousands of locations. He experienced the power of God because he got up to preach, he opened up the Bible to Isaiah 40, and he read a passage in King James, now you know why, that's the exact same passage we read together at the beginning of this sermon because he was preaching it into a world that was just coming off of World War I, was suffering, was worried about the future, was uncertain about what was next, and wasn't sure which way to turn. And so the preacher called them back to the presence of God that produces peace, which leads for us to experience the fullness of God's power and the goodness in our grief. My text this afternoon is taken from Isaiah, chapter 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust in the balance. All nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing. Vanity. He bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as a vanity. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no strength, he increaseth might. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. not faint, God promises. You will be lifted up on eagle's wings. Humble yourself and experience the presence of God so that you can know the peace of God, so that you can feel the full power of God and find the goodness in your grief. And then let God use you to reflect the light of his love and its power to the world around you. But it starts by experiencing his presence that we're going to get a taste of in this meal before we go home. I'll turn it over to the campus pastors at each campus for the sacrament of Holy Communion. And invite the communion service to come to the stations right now so that we get ready to go. And then we'll get out right on time. My wife and I were in Charlotte uh, over Memorial Day, and we were there to babysit our granddaughter, which you don't have to ask twice. We, uh, we got there, though, and she was sick. She looked like that. Look at her sick little eyes. It's heartbreaking, little Addison. And uh, we still had a blast. We still had a great time. When uh, Addison's parents, our son and his wife, got home, uh, we took this picture, which was just a little too late. For 20 minutes right before this, this is our son John, Addie's dad. Addie was feeling sick. She did not want to sleep. And the only way that she would fall asleep was she reached her hand out of her little crib, her little perfect, little cute, little baby hand, little fat little hand. And her dad, our son, held out his hand. And it was her little hand and his big hand for 20 minutes. And I know what some of you are thinking. That's actually not the strategy you want to use to put a baby to sleep. You should let her learn to suffer and cry and put herself to sleep. She was sick! They normally follow all of the rules, but she was sick, kind of like we are today. And so here's what's going to happen in this meal if you receive it with faith and your heart and mind wide open. Your Heavenly Father is reaching out His hand, and we as His children from our crib, our humble little crib, reach out our hand and put our hand in his. Jesus promises, I'm in this bread. I'm in this wine. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. Listen to the promise of God's word. In the night in which he's betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, broke it, and gave it for all to eat, saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you, for all people, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, Jesus says, and this is my blood. I'm in it. It's still bread and wine, but I'm in it. Believe in my promise and receive it, and it's done to you. Your hand in mine, my presence in your spirit, my grace for your sin, 
My power for your weakness. My presence for your stresses. My peace for your despair. My goodness for your grief. Nothing less will do. Line up for this one. Receive it for all the power that it has for you. And let God fill you up with his presence, his peace, and his power. Together, let's pray our table grace before the Lord's Supper, the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Everybody's invited to this meal. Jesus is the host, not me. You don't have to have the right denominational stripe to, to earn it. You just need to believe that Christ is present in this meal. Receive it with that faith and come and get it. Kids who've not received First Communion instruction are welcome to come forward for a blessing. Um, take the bread that's given to you, receive it, the body of Christ given to you, you'll hear the words of Christ's promise, and then choose from the tray. The wine is red and alcoholic. The grape juice is white and non-alcoholic. So choose wisely according to whatever is your preference and receive it together. After you receive it, you can stay and continue to sing with our band, our worship band, continue to worship, or you can go. If you got kids and hope kids, you might want to go uh, so that we can keep things moving. We got another service here in 20 minutes. So come and eat, come and drink. The table is set. And whatever you do, go out there and be the church.